Hi, I'm Peter Defty, and uh, this is a discussion we're going to have today about OFM and endurance fueling. And we're uh, filming this here uh, a few days before the Western States 100 mile endurance run, the 2022 version. And I have to my left here Jeff Bronco Billy Browning and uh, Peter Mortimer, who's actually running uh, as an entrance today. He's, um, and I don't need to, uh, they can tell you what they've done. I'll tell you what they've done. Jeff's won several hundreds. The last one was Scout Mountain, was it, Jeff? Yeah. Just recently here, and he's been on a pretty streak. What was the, you ran? About three what, weeks ago. Yeah, two but and a half did weeks. like three days of Silomo, then. Yeah, three days of Silomo, and then uh, Grand Canyon FKT double, two times rim to rim to rim, and then Scout Mountain 100, and now I'm training for Hard Rock 100. Right. And, and in three weeks. Peter is the, uh, 2022 winner of the Hurt 100, and he was second at the inaugural Coca-Dona 250. He closed on everybody but Michael, who was just ran out of real estate, right? That's right. <laughs> Maybe next time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So uh, these guys are accomplished athletes uh, who are using a, a program I've developed, and, and they're also teaching this and mentoring other people through their coaching on how to optimize your fat metabolism. And a lot of times I feel like I'm Captain Obvious because if you step back from the conventional paradigm of, of what's currently being recommended for endurance and, and actually all sports where they're using a high carbohydrate uh, diet, it makes perfect sense because evolutionarily, um, when you think about it, and if you can just stop, step back a second, um, the reason we ha carry a lot of fat on our body is because that's what we're meant to burn for our aerobic spectrum. And, and glycogen and glucose are meant to be our fight or flight uh, energy source. And we have a robust supply of fight or flight stuff, but we've kind of turned the tables where, we're, where the conventional model has people metabolically programmed to use all their fight or flight energy. And so that whole thing where they're marketing to you how, um, um, you know, you're supposed to use your you're going to run out of glucose and you need to take a gel. So we're going to kind of dive into why we have a, a game-changing offering here in terms of getting back to your native physiology. So I want to start it by letting both Peter and Jeff talk about their roads, their journeys to OFM and, and how they're doing it and, and their, you know, passionate about not only living that life, but also sharing it with others. Who wants to go first? Jeff, you want to take this? Sure, I'll take it. Um, uh, my road to it was a um, well. It's been a meandering one a little bit because I I was a vegetarian in my twenties, and then I did to more uh, had some health issues. My wife had more health issues than I did, um, having our kids, and and coming back and wanting to breastfeed and all that kind of stuff. And she just really had some health problems and and. Um, failure to thrive and had blood work done and, and wasn't doing very well. And we really uh, uh, embraced a, a change in our diet from vegetarianism to a more of a, a whole foods organic approach with clean meats and grass fed meats and, and that kind of thing. And, but whole grains still and all that. And we You're did that. Western Price, right? Yeah. Weston A. Price Foundation, like Sally Fallon Nourishing Traditions book. And uh, we did that for about 12 or 13 years. And in 2015, I had some health stuff in my mid-40s that 
Um, I had basically a, a GI track over overgrowth of candida after some international travel and racing and drinking questionable water too. Um, who Did knows? A little drinking too. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I just had I had a lot of issues going on in my gut. And uh, I did a bunch of research in uh, the end of 2015, and I, I really spent probably about um, you know 20 or 30 hours in one week, um, every, every night from like eight to midnight. Um, after I'd be done with my graphic design work, would like study and looking at forums and all kinds of stuff on like candida and understanding that it's yeast and it, yeast feeds on sugar, and then that led me to some stuff in the paleo circles and keto circles to uh, a, how to deal with this from a, from a natural perspective with diet and, and put it in remission. And so um, when, that, when I kind of sat back from that research, um, so to speak, I pushed away from the table and my laptop, uh, I, I kind of told my wife, hey, I think I need to kind of do like low-carb paleo, and she was like, I have two cookbooks. Um, so we were already ready and to start rolling with that. And I immediately reached out to Zach Bitter and, um, I knew he was doing it. We had shared some miles together and we shared a hotel room at outdoor retailer and we discussed diet during that time. And I'd always been kind of a geeky side thing for me was diet and tinkering. And anyway, uh, he kind of, he put me in, in contact with Peter Defty and at Vespa and we started chatting and, um, the two of them really mentored me through the first uh, six months or so of really that hardcore like reset that we were doing. Um, we did like a month reset of keto, and then I had to keep pretty strict for about a year, like where I couldn't bring too many strategic carbohydrates back in the OFM. Yeah, because you're candida. Yeah, because it would just flare my candida back out, especially after races when my immune system was down. Um, and and so for me, I had to be pretty strict for about a year, year and a half. And then I was able to loosen the reins that healed my gut enough um, that I kind of got all that in check after about 18 months. And, you know, the last, let's see, that was, it's been seven years ago. So the last five and a half years, I've pretty much been able to bring back simple carbohydrates. And for me, that mean for me, that, what that means for me is mainly fruit and veggies and some potatoes, a little bit of white rice occasionally, but I can't stray too far, like with really high glycemic stuff like breads and flowers and I don't, I haven't had any flare-ups in a long, 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 long time. I mean, years. Um, but, uh, I just feel better now that I've had to be that strict for 18 months. And then you, then I let the, once I kind of had that healed up a little bit, I let the reins loose a little bit and I just didn't recover quite as well as I did. You get this kind of, one of the things I get with the athletes I coach with OFM is the recovery. That's a huge piece of it. Like how fast you bounce back, especially if you have a lot of ultras or something, if you're a veteran, an older veteran who is getting older and that's affecting your, your recovery. Plus them, your diet is affecting your recovery. And, and, and the two of those are kind of a double whammy on inflammation. And, and this is a very low inflammatory diet, this approach. And, and, and you can tinker it in different ways, more carbs, less carbs. Um, I, I feel better on a lot, a decent amount of fruit, you know, three or four servings a day. Um, most days when you're in heavy training, when I'm in heavy training, if I'm in more of like off season, I'm a little stricter with the, how many servings of fruit a day, but I find I feel really good on it. And I stay pretty darn lean, even if I have keep the, the fruit in the mix when I'm not in heavy training. So, um, I just feel good. So yeah, th that's kind of my, my, how I got into it, I guess. 
Yeah, and that's one thing we, we, we really want the audience to understand is once you get adapted and get down the road and we work on restoring your GI tract, you know, you build that metabolic capacity and that and resilience in your GI tract to where you can go back to a lot of stuff that were like prohibited before and you have that latitude. And Jeff, you, you probably noticed that, you know, it's, it's okay to stray off once in a while because that's the best way to, to autocorrect, right? Well, I, I find that, yeah, I mean, that's, when I'm more strict, I, I stay, I feel better, I recover faster, all those kind of things. So it keeps, I think it keeps you, at least this is the feedback I get from the athletes. I've, I've at this point, have coached well over 100 athletes in OFM and, um, and most of them are, you know, 30s to 60s. And, and most of them are probably, you know, median ages in their 40s. And and I that's when your metabol your metabolic starts to you know your 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 proteins anymore. <laughs> yeah your protein synthesis is slowing down you're losing muscle mass naturally there's all kinds of other factors going on as you age yeah testosterone starts to drop and and so I I think that's when it really sh shines for those kind of people because a lot of those are already veterans so we really have a good like baseline as a case study that we can go oh. I, this N equals one in every single athlete is the same exact feedback. And that is, whoa, like after the first race on it, yeah, like, yeah, it's wow. Like I, most of the time you, I can literally say, get ready for your mind to be blown, um, on the recovery. And cause I was this way, Zach, well, tell, tell us about, tell about your, Zach, your yeah, recovery after Hurt. Yeah. So Hurt 100 was my first one in 2016. I ran, ran that like seven weeks after like going hardcore and adapting and, and, and really pushed it hard and um had you a won. and i won, won and i had a great race but one of the things that um it was funny like before the race bitter sent me an email and he said get ready for the recovery it will blow your mind and you know i didn't have anything to compare it to besides i had 2200s as a high carb athlete and 15 years of racing and and i, I was just like oh yeah yeah whatever you know i didn't really think much that deeply about it until afterwards and I was literally, there was a spot when we were walking, we were walking to the awards ceremony and it was, it was 48 hours, less than 48 hours, excuse me, 30 some hours after the finish. And normally I would be hobbling and swollen and, and really swollen. And, and one of the things I found was I was doing burpees in the street because I was freaking out so much. I was like, oh my God. And I was taking, like, I was texting pictures of my, my ankles and my knees to my wife. And I'm like, I can see my veins still. And like, I can see my bones. And normally I'm like ballooned up. And you're going down the stairs backwards. Yeah. I'm just, yeah. You're like, you're, you're really gimping. And, um, I wasn't doing that. Like I, you know, fast forward like a couple of days after hundred when the things start to loosen up, that's where I was immediately after the race. And I feel like that I was in and out of stairs, you know, I was going up and down stairs. I was getting out of cars and normally it would be like your hand holding the handle and lowering yourself with your upper body because your legs are so thrashed. And I just, I found like that he, he really was right. He was not exaggerating. And, and then I, I could honestly, after that, when I started coaching it, I could tell people that and they would, they all had the same reaction. Yeah. Yeah. Until afterwards. And then like, Oh my gosh, I can't believe I recover. I had a, I had an athlete, a seven or a 63. He finished a hundred miler. Normally he would be destroyed for three weeks. He had done a lot of hundreds in his life and he'd normally be destroyed for about two weeks and he'd hike for at least a week or 10 days before he'd even be able to jog. And he ran on day four. He's texting me freaking out. And then two weeks after he runs St. George marathon and, and 
was running with his daughter and, and it was kind of a family tradition to run this race, no matter where you were. So if you're, even if you're unfit, you took hike breaks and everything, right? You just, they just finished it. We got cru- cruising along and about 10 miles in, he's like clipping off eight minute miles, eight twenties. And he's like doing the math and like, I could, qu- I could qualify for Boston oh, no kidding. in my age group. So he just kept rolling with the pace and qualified for Boston two weeks after a hundred. And that was solidified OFM for him yeah. because he was like, this is like a game changer. I had a wife recently of a 67 year old, um, tell me on the phone, she was on speaker during one of our coaching calls. And she's like, thank you, Jeff Browning, because he had lost so much weight. He's like, I didn't think I could get this lean at 67 again. Like, cause he got, you know, six pack again, you right. know, waist back down to thin. And you always have that spare tire, you know, around your waist and, and he was training hard. He's training for hundreds. Um, but the recovery, that was the, it keeps coming back to the recovery. I think that's probably, if I, that's the one thing that doesn't get on everyone's radar is the recovery on this is amazing. Well, and, and let's, let's, let's frame this a different way because it really, you have to look at a paradigm shift and have that aha moment because the reason you recover faster isn't because there's actual recovery going on so much as you prevented the damage on a cellular level that you're doing to your cells and your mitochondria by not burning massive amounts of glucose, so, which is causing a lot of oxidative stress, a lot of lactate load that your body has to compensate for. So right. Because you're using more oxygen. You're using more... There's, oxygen, there's, so you're in fat burn, big yeah, oxidation. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and you're, you're, there's a lot more lactic acid, right? Correct? Is that no, right? There's less, when you're in beta oxidation, you don't produce no, the lactate. No, burning... I mean, in sure. burning carbs. Right, in burning right. glucose. That's the thing, is the two things right. that happen are... You're, bur- you're creating a lot of oxidative stress, which people talk about antioxidants. It's like we're oxidizing when we create energy, but it's oxidative stress, which is that like uh, detonating in your car when you have bad gas. That's the oxidative stress. And then also when you burn glucose, you create lactate and your body can only uh, assimilate so much of it. And then after that, it starts to accumulate and then your body has to compensate. And that That's a driver. So you know, that's real key for people to, to get is like, oh, I'm not damaging my body. So the body actually, the, it tips that balance from, you know, because training provides what they call training effect or super compensation. And so it shifts that balance from having to recover to get back to the baseline with a little bit of training effect to focusing on more of the training and getting a bigger training effect. And you see that with you, you can yeah. handle a bigger training. Load. I definitely can be, handle a bigger load the last seven years. Yeah. I mean, I mean, there, there are, you know, people could argue that, well, you also had been in the sport 16 years at that point, and you hit this point where you can just start handling more. But I was always handling just a little more, a little more volume to where really my training volume hasn't changed, but I've been able to handle more intensity or more big vert days. Um, and the other thing is I can bounce back from races really fast. So it allows me to race more often too, like yeah. bigger races back well, like to back. Well, like you're doing this year. I mean, you're going three days of Silomo. I mean, here's a good example. Day. I ran Scout Mountain 100, and eight days later, I did the Cowboy Loop in the Grand Canyon, which is 21 miles, and Pete knows it well. 5,000 vert. 5,000 feet of vert. Dropping the bucket. Dropping the bucket <laughs> eight days after the race, and I felt great. Um, and then you've been, you've been training the Southern Sierras. Yeah, I've been I training a big, big vert and volume or, or at altitude, so... I don't do gigantic volume. I would I would say that. I don't I occasionally hit 100 mile weeks, but most of the time my sweet spots in the 60 to 80 range with a decent amount of vert yeah. at altitude. So, yeah. it's slower miles for sure. So, yeah. Pete. Yeah, I mean, I I came from 
a background of really just being overweight. Um, when I got into to running in 2010, I was probably sitting around 225 pounds. Um, I had been up to 250 pounds and I entered running as a way of uh, losing weight. Uh, not the really the best way to lose weight. As anyone knows, nutrition is where it's at. And yeah. uh, as I got into running and then finally uh, ultra running in 2014, uh, I was just a middle of the pack guy. I, um, you know, I was an okay runner on the roads and uh, the trails were kind of kicking my ass. And um, I got to the point where I started doing some of these ultra races and um, I was kind of, my crew would laugh at me because uh, it'd be like 60, 70 miles in and I'd be puking my guts out on the side of the road. <laughs> and I just, because I didn't know, really know anything about what I was putting in my system. And uh, uh, it was, I was doing a Zane Gray, I think it was in uh, 2017. And um, one of my Air Viper racing team members, um, Nick Curry, um, he uh, passed me coming up uh, Hell's Gate and he just looked incredible. And it was that moment I was, I, I just told myself, I'm like, what is he doing differently that I'm not? So I, you know, chatted with him after the race and um, he pointed me in the direction of Peter Defty. And uh, I started to make that, that metabolic shift. Um, I basically cut out running for a month. I mean, I had uh, Tusher's 100K and uh, Bigfoot 200 on the horizon. And um, I had done... Uh, Tahoe 200 the year before that was my first uh, 200 mile race and um, finished in 84 hours and I, I knew if going into Bigfoot it was going to be a harder race and I wanted to try this I wanted to you know be ready and be metabolically fit so um, I took some I took a month off running and I really just focused on uh, a ketogenic diet and getting myself straightened uh, and uh, let me tell you the running at first it was difficult coming back in and like having that carb depletion and always relying on on those carbs to to feed me before going out for a run during a run and all of a sudden i'm just sitting there feeling like running on empty um and after a week or two you know when i thought it wasn't going to get any better i started to take a turn and then the next thing i know i'm starting to go out longer and feel better and like jeff said recover faster um I went into Tusher's uh, on my first race um, on the diet, and um, again, I was very strict at keto at this time. Um, I ended up doing pretty well. I, I wanted a top 10 finish. I Kind of a disaster race because we got my rain jacket and got stuck on a peak for about 30 minutes in a lightning storm. So, um, but, uh, but felt great afterwards, um, and I knew that was my training race leading up to uh, Bigfoot 200. And uh, yeah, Bigfoot 200, when the time came, again, uh, being really, really strict on keto at the time, which I've since kind of strayed away from, um, I ended up finishing that race 24 hours faster than I did Tahoe uh, the year before and uh, taking second overall. Um, when I crossed that finish line and after running for two and a half days and two and a half hours of sleep, I never felt so good in my entire life. Um, I, well, you were in the deep fat burn then. Oh yeah, deep yeah. yeah, deep. Focus, um, yeah. yeah, I mean, if you <laughs> if you look at pictures from me back then, I mean, I I was weighing less than I had ever weighed. I, I was sitting at like 165 pounds, and I'm I'm six foot three. So I mean, I was just kind of rail thin. But I again, I had been super strict on on the keto, and I and again, I hadn't really talked with with peter that that much as far as like the strategic carving at that point 
but I knew this. We was all a game did changer. that at the beginning. Yeah, too strict. Yeah, a little too strict. Yeah, and and other folks that I've talked you become to, a little carb phobic at first when you because you, you do. do a reset. You do, and one of the things I would if I can interject real quick. Yeah, I think one thing to point out here is that there's a initial reset phase of about four weeks and then you're kind of another strict for another six weeks so 10 weeks total but yeah, 10 or 12 weeks. yeah, yeah. but really strict for the first four weeks like really low carb um, and that helps you open that metabolic pathway to burn on bar fat and get it open but once it's open you can start you know after you kind of learn what to do you can start tinkering with bringing carbs back like fruit and stuff from more of a paleo food yeah, list and where, like, during your training before, after. Yeah, strategic, before. like strategic timing. So go ahead. Yep. Uh, sorry. I just wanted to like point that in. I think the listeners yeah. would I think, I think appreciate that little point. really well adapted. I think all of us agree as coaches, sometimes people get, I won't say it, won't but, call them that, but, but people get too strict on the key. I, I, I call it carb phobic. Yeah. They get carb phobic. They're yeah. just a freaked out to eat. They, they've been counting their carbs because you have to do that at first and right. learn to and, learn. And they've been, they've been listening to the, the more strict keto people who are saying, 50 or less and anything over 50 is like but but not if you're training hard yeah Yeah. and so anyway well yeah you know and like i said i I was a little car phobic because i you know when i started reintroducing those uh, cheat days you know i like pizza and ice cream as much as the next person it would just absolutely wreck me and i just I didn't like that feeling. I liked the feeling that I felt all the time when I was on keto. The new clean. Yeah, exactly. And it was, it's just clean eating. You know, I, my entire life, I just kind of eaten whatever was in front of me and just didn't really follow any sort of strict diet. And I had this, I didn't really even look at it as a diet. It was a way of life. I just never felt so good. Um, so yeah, I ended up, you know, doing really well at Bigfoot and then as I started to progress and started doing better at these races, I, you know, I met with Zach Bitter and then Peter and then, yeah, um, I came and your place. that's right. Yeah. yeah. And little by little, I started introducing more carbs in, into my running and, and seeing the benefits of doing that. Um, and now as Jeff and I talk about, we use keto as a tool, like before race, or, uh, if, if we're not racing or training, I just like dropping into it just because again, I like the way it makes me feel. It keeps me honest. Um, but I'm not afraid to, you know, go out and have, you know, some carbs every now and again. Smothered and, fries. Yeah, exactly. When you, when you want it. <laughs> What's but, that place in Flagstaff that has smothered fries? Well, yeah, the poutine. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, yeah. It's like people need to know that this is not a ketogenic diet. You're not going to be on a strict diet. And, and it's used as a tool. That's, that's the one thing I think is a good emphasis is that it is a tool in your toolbox to be used occasionally, strategically. After that initial reset, you learn how to do it, and then you can use it as a tool yeah. after that because you understand it. Yeah. You know how to do it. You know what foods to go for because you've practiced it. And right. and then after that, it's a day here, a day there, a week here, a week there. That's it. Right. And the initial the initial metabolic shift, I mean, it, it definitely takes you almost a month to really kind of get the effects and feel like you're in keto and you know, you can do the P strips and all that, but once you get your body trained on it, I mean, you can get it down to where it takes you like a couple of days you know because yeah, you know and that, and what to do oh you mean to reintroduce ketogenic eating right. for a couple right. of days yeah. yeah it's sort of a metabolic reset mini metabolic reset because once you're fat adapting you build the metabolic capacity through training right that you know, that pathway's you, open you go into a recovery block and you take three days where you're kind of do, going through this natural intermittent fasting period where you just fast you don't think about it you just fast because you're not hungry you're not yeah. doing big big volume training and all of a sudden it's 20 hours, 24 hours gone by and you haven't really eaten as long as you stay hydrated. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I find it, well, I find it ha- handy as a tool 
after like say the holidays or you go visit family and you may have too many drinks and eat a little kind of fall off eating plan and like off the food list and eat other stuff like you know sweets or pie or some you know someone makes a really good homemade pie it's like hard to say no to that on thanksgiving at least a piece yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. really good sourdough bread yeah, yeah. and stuff like yeah. that so like there's times when like i might fall off the rails a little bit for a few days while I'm on traveling or something. And then I'm like, as soon as I get home, it's like, like buckle down for five days. And then like, boom, you feel great, cleans everything up. And then you yeah. just keep going back to your normal strategic carbohydrates. Yeah. You have to live a little. I mean, yeah, that's, I, mean, I, that. I think you guys will agree once you're in the, the, the style of living, not just eating, but that we're at, you don't even think about it as a diet. You just kind of intuitively know. Yeah how to eat and when to eat and, and you know that if you're going to blow off and have some beer and pizza for whatever social occasion okay next day i'm going to go out and take a vespa and do a long run and just yep. myself yeah yeah i'm usually going to intermittent fast the day after something like that yeah. so if yeah. i go off the rails like big time with like pizza and beer like i'm i am the next day is usually at least an, a, a 16 to 18 hour intermittent fast to clean my gut it's up an easy workout and with, yeah. yeah and then go and then go run, but I'm, you know, GI is going to be a little off. You're going to be a little bloated. Yeah, you can't do a hard workout, but you can. Yeah, yeah, you're, you're just, you. That's the one thing I think that when I say the new, new clean, new level of clean is like the GI bloating that comes from grains that you don't, and and certain foods and processed foods that you don't realize you you're getting because it's your normal, and then all of a sudden you have a new normal, and the new normal is like whoa, everything's really good. And then, yep. and also like legumes, gut wise, and also legumes. I notice yeah. legumes. Like if I eat peanuts, man, it just sucks me. Yeah. Right, you know? right, yeah, yeah. So. yeah. One of my biggest takeaways, I think, from the whole metabolic shift was just just looking at a label and like you know learning to read a label. Right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there's over like 50 names for sugar, and like they're constantly changing. They're constantly adapting because it's whatever they can get to like force it into your body. You know. And well, and, and I was just on a call with a client today and he says I'm starving I'm not even but and then I said well, what'd you have and he was saying I had eggs and and I took this beef protein powder and it's like yeah. dude you don't, <laughs> you don't understand if you're taking all these refined proteins that most of that gets converted to glucose and yeah. a lot of people don't understand that 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 protein you know naked protein processed protein most of your body's going to convert yeah. to, to sugar so that that's another yeah, good point. real foods so um yeah, real foods the different types of, you know, like versions of kind of keto that we've kind of, you know, switched over over the years. When I started, I was doing kind of a strict, more of a high fat type keto. And uh, Jeff, you probably agree, like we've both started leaning more towards protein based. Yeah, um, I, I would call, I would call it uh, carnivore 2.0 almost, yeah. <laughs> um, well, uh, where you're using fruit and raw honey and raw dairy uh, and cultured dairy as your carbohydrate use, and then you're getting and, and some some you're getting some protein from that, and then just a very high, a higher protein approach. Like, you know, one of the things I coach is 70, 70 to one hundred percent of your body weight in grams a day of protein. That's what you should be shooting for. So if you're a one hundred forty pound male, you should be one hundred forty grams of carbohydrates. And this is whole food protein sources, not protein powder. Yeah, not a bunch of whey protein. Yeah, yeah. I, I always have a whey shake every once in a while, but. Um, we keep it in the house for like when I'm, I need something convenient quick. Yeah, yeah. I use it more like I'm crunched for time and I can put it in the blender real quick with some frozen berries and I'm done. Um, you know, I don't have to cook, but I, that's where it's, I'm using it more in a pinch than I am using yeah. it as a staple. 
my staple is. Do you, you know, do you put a little bit of coconut milk or something like that to help the assimilation of the protein? The way that's a good that's a good way to take in like a whey protein shake. Um, I yeah, I usually do. I, I do it in raw milk. Okay, well, and raw cream. Right, I get raw cream, milk yeah, and raw cream. cream, and I put a little raw cream yeah. in, and I put yeah, MCT oil. The, the point is, don't use water because if you just take that whey protein, in, most of it's going to convert to glucose. Yeah, yeah, and I so I do it in whole raw milk, and that has raw, that's raw milk with like with bacteria and all that. Well, and it's got and it's going to have a floating uh, cream in it, yeah. so it's it's like streaked with yeah. cream, so it's got a higher fat content than an average whole milk, like pasteurized whole milk. Yeah, and I'll get a little into the weeds here for the for the watchers here but that's that's because you need to have fat with protein to help trigger that uh, response of bile from your gallbladder so you can emulsify the fat and protein so your body can take it up because if it doesn't that protein ends up becoming a lot of uh, sugar and, and, and you know nitrogen works your kidneys over and i i have to i mean pete and i both we we recently split a a cow <laughs> yeah, we split a cow. We got a half, and we both got we split. Basically, we both got a quarter um, from a local rancher, and so we like to vote with our dollars and support local farming and ranching, and especially if they're grass fed, grass finished, so they're doing it right. Um, you know, grass grass finished beef is carbon negative people so do your yeah. research out there we don't need to get into it down a rabbit trail but that but stir that pot i must i like stirring. to stir the pot a little man on the the propaganda out there but um i really do i you know we eat a decent amount of, of red meat like both pete and i do i eat a decent amount of eggs too and um and i love raw dairy and i've always been a milk drinker and i love raw, we've been drinking raw milk since for 20 years um so never, I've never gotten sick. So, and, and incidentally, I'm half Asian, so I've I've got that lactose intolerance and, and milk protein allergy, and I actually do drink raw milk on occasion because I can go to a friend's dairy and get it right out of the tank or right out of the cow, and I I tolerate raw milk versus I I take pasteurized milk. It just kills me. Yeah, my, my wife is the same way. Like pasteurized stuff's not very, she can't do it very much. Um, she just avoids milk. She always grew up avoiding milk because of that. Right. Um, but once we got raw milk in the house, they, she can drink a little bit of that and be fine. Yeah. 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 So that, that's interesting. And, the, you know, it's really about eating whole foods. And like I said at the start of this, to get us back to that native way of um, living. Um, but also, you know, it's not just about a diet. It's it's about keeping stress levels down. And, you know, uh, these guys like to, they're really chill. And that's part of the reason because chronic stress, like being conscious and worrying about everything you put in your mouth or worrying about everything in life, um, that's as big a problem as having too many carbs in the diet. You're, you're pinging that fight or flight response and physiologically. Raising that, that cortisol. Yeah, raising yeah. your cortisol, your adrenaline. Uh, yeah, you don't have to overthink it. But I think you have to get kind of strict at the beginning just to learn like it's good to go through a strict Absolutely. strict phase because you really learn how to you have to learn to get like new comfort foods, new snack foods, new things that when you're bored and you're like want to eat or you just did a big training volume and you're still hungry. You know, sometimes you're just hungry yeah. because you've trained a ton. So, you know, that, I think that's an important piece. Yeah. And the other thing that's important for people to know is, is high, proper hydration. And I, I'm just going to be general with that because hydration is probably one of the most dynamic things out there, whether you're a high carb or, or high or fat adapted. I won't call it high fat because as we talked about, once you're transitioned, it's not a high fat as the keto people would say. It's, it's, a, it's a diet that gets your body to burn fat, your own fat. 
but hydration is so dynamic and and both for, for performance and health it's really key and and when you get rid of that inflammation you get rid of all that hypertension which means your cardiovascular is real stiff when you're on when you're inflamed but then it relaxes and then you need to bring the sodium back in to maintain blood volume because a lot of people get what they call the keto flu or they get up out of a chair or bend over and they're a little well, you're also thin. doing an unprocessed diet at that point so yeah. it's only real food that doesn't have any added sodium to it so all of a sudden you go from having like say 10 grams of sodium a day from a processed diet to all of a sudden you're not even getting a gram yeah, you right. need and your body's like whoa like pete and i yeah. both have experienced this through the walk yeah. walking this out and I, I know he coaches i coach this way too and that's adding back in some supplementation of 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 electrolytes like use L element or lm lmnt and i use i use uh redmond relight um both products i've i, I recommend to my athletes and i think they're great um yeah, there's a whole yeah. bunch of really good sodium products yeah there. without sh added sugar in yeah. it because that's the problem there's so many out there but a ton of stuff you read the labels like oh man you put sugar in this with the sodium like i don't need to be sipping in my everyday life i don't need to be sipping on simple sugar i need it's great while you, race, yeah. race long run great right especially after an hour or two it's great but but during like your everyday lifestyle, you should not be sipping on sugar. Yeah, and yeah. sodium, sodium just whacking is not, your sodium is not the, blood sugar out. Sodium is not the issue because we we've, we've been conditioned to think that sodium salt is is going to cause cardiovascular disease. It's it's actually the inflammation that's that's driving the the high blood pressure, and and when you add sodium in that context, it's it's a problem. So, you know. Um, well, the sodium piece, especially if you're a bigger guy, I mean, that's one of the things that, you know, it took Weren't me a while. Weren't you having some, like, you were having some heart stuff because of it. Right. Yeah. I, I was trying to pinpoint it down and, um, you know, obviously, you know, I'm taking the salt pills while I'm running and everything, but it was just my everyday salt intake where I was sweating so much. I was like, I was having uh, incidents where I was go out for a run and then all of a sudden I was almost to the point where I was passing out, heart palpitations, and I had a full echo workup, and everything came back perfectly normal. And uh, we finally narrowed it down to electrolytes. Um, and since then, I made some tweaks in my, you know, especially if you're running a lot of miles like we are, I mean, you have to get that sodium intake. Even um, in your sedentary part. Right, yeah, yeah, like like two, or three, like two or three or four grams a day yeah, yeah. Of, of sodium. And that's, you cannot do that by just salting your food. No. No, so uh, that's that was one of my biggest takeaways, and I've since then uh, introduced like the LMNT into into my everyday diet, and you know I just carry a bottle of that, and you know I travel a lot for work, so it's nice to have something to kind of sip on, but again, no sugar in there, just. Yep. But I haven't had an issue since. And that'll also not only keep you healthy, but it'll also improve your performance. And and what I've found with working with people is is maintaining proper hydration with with sodium based fluid intake is key to attenuating the hunger triggers not right. just keeping you performing right. I mean you have to have the hydration like w if your hydration is on point you'll need less glucose a lot of times when you're salted your electrolytes are low you'll actually think you need to, to take in calories yeah I approach I approach daily sodium and potassium and electrolyte like replenishment in my everyday life like I would a race I have a system so every day I have like I get up I make a I make a, a, a quart of so basically a liter of, of liquid for the morning and I and I have about almost a thousand milligrams of sodium in there and some potassium and some magnesium and some calcium and that gets the initial pint gets half of it gets I chug 
because you're dehydrated when you wake up. Well, I make coffee or tea, and then then you're then I sip on the other pint the rest of the morning, and then I do the same thing in the afternoon, and I do the same thing in the evening. So that for me, that gives me a minimum baseline, not salting my food close to three, two point two and a half to three grams of sodium a day, plus potassium and magnesium. Supplemental sodium. Yep, supplemental sodium on top of my my meals, yeah. and and so and I and I have I I liberally salt my food with Redmond real salt. So that's my favorite salt. It goes everywhere with me. Yeah. Especially well, again, with the hydration, living at high elevation, like we are, I mean, yeah. you got to have a bottle next to you. Cause I mean, you wake up every morning, just like parched D- dry. Yeah. Yeah. Cause we're, we're in the, you're in the dry, dry high altitude. Yeah. Southwest. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. And at altitude. So that's why I wanted to bring you up. So, so, oh, you know, to optimize. And then the other thing, one of the other things we ought to talk about, I mean, it's, it's, Diet is a big part of it, but it's not just the diet. Like one of the other things that's real key is vitamin D levels. Like I found this like 12 years ago when I was working with athletes that um, Peter's Peter's vitamin D reference range is 50 to 90. The standard medical is anywhere from 20 to 30. To and there's been 100. studies now that have backed up that. That's right. I, I established yeah. it because I could see that anything below 50 was suboptimal. You get to 40, it starts to improve, but 40 to 50 is sort of a gray area, but anything below 40 was just, you couldn't get people to burn fat at a high rate. Once you got them above 50, it's just like, Katie bar the door. And, and like, I would rather see people outdoors getting natural sun, but in the, in the modern world, that's hard for anybody to do. In fact, I, I did some testing at Pavolina 100 where we did blood tests, blood work before and after the race. And I came up with my vitamin D like in the high 30s and then went to the, the mid 40s over the race because I was out there pacing a guy and I was out in the sun and it just shot back up. But I was like, wait a second, I run with my shirt off all the time and I'm still not optimal. So the, the you know, it's like some vitamin D, proper vitamin D supplementation is, is usually warranted for most people and we have a, a developed a protocol for that because it's not just about vitamin D in, in, in isolation. You need to have the vitamin K2 and magnesium. Those are the two main cofactors plus vitamin A, bioavailable vitamin A, not beta carotene, but bio, uh, vitamin A to help that uptake. And it, it's got to be timed like you got to do it in the morning, otherwise you won't sleep. Um, of course, we do this at night in the evening when people are running through the night because it actually does disrupt. Yeah, you your use strategic yeah. vitamin D. Yeah, 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 and then that that gets it up. And that's really what I found really interesting as a as an N equals one on vitamin D with coaching is that um, my athletes who have gotten a, who went and got a test, blood test, and to see where their vitamin D levels were, and say let's say they're in the twenties or thirties, right? Optimal range is fifty to eighty, and if they're in the twenties and thirties. They they have tried to do like seven thousand IU's a day or five thousand IU's a day and and trying to get it up, and it never really cl- it climbs a little but it's really slow. It's real slow. Yeah, but if you do works. mega dosing of like say you know if you look at seven thousand a week times seven is forty is 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 uh, uh, forty nine thousand. Yeah, forty nine thousand. And so if you just do a fifty thousand pill once a week it actually works better to get their levels back up and faster than if you do 7,000 a day by spreading it out, which is really weird. You wouldn't expect it to be that way, but it, across the board, everyone that's had low vitamin D and they've had trouble getting it up with like daily do- dosing, if they've it gone to a, up. yeah, if they go to a mega dose protocol every once a week, 
then all of a sudden, like their next test, it's back, it's in the right range. Yeah. So I, I've had I, good luck that way too. Yeah, I actually did a lot of uh, reading and research back in 2009 or 10 on this, and that's what it pointed to. And, and when we did these boluses and had all the cofactors and had them, you have to be a good fat metabolizer too, because vitamin D is a, a soluble fat, like vitamin A, vitamin C, these are all yeah, A, D, E, and K. They're all fat soluble vitamins. So if I if I'm working with a real bad sugar burner, I have to first get them somewhat fat adapted before you introduce them because then you can risk some vitamin D toxicity. But it's just this is what the research um, uh, showed, and it's Michael Hollick who's the foremost researcher on vitamin D that you need to bolus your vitamin D to get to move, particularly if you're in the sitting in the winter. It's there's a very interesting um, recent podcast, Dark Horse podcast, on this subject on vitamin D, and from two researchers, one's from the UK and one's from Texas, I think, and they were teaming up to research vitamin D against viruses and, and against general health. And that recommendation was up there. Like they were yeah. saying 50,000 a week, basically. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's, a, that brings us to another point since we're going to stir the pot, right? Jeff, I mean, I, like I say, I'm, I'm cap, I feel like I'm captain obvious a lot of times because I'm just going back to some of my, the basic biology I got when I was in school at UC Davis. And, you know, in terms of health and immune system function and resilience um, in today's day and age with, with certain things being sort of on our minds now, one of the basics of virology is viruses replicate glycolytically. So your cells, when they're making these viruses and these viruses get out of control, it's done on a glucose-based metabolism. So if you're a carb burner because your hormones, your high insulin has you primarily burning carbohydrates, you're, you're literally inviting viruses into replicate. That's why one of the strategic ways to fight a virus, any kind of virus when you get it, is to immediately go to like a low carb approach because you're going to and fast a little bit and you'll starve it out yeah. because it doesn't have a pathway to replicate on. Yeah, it's, it, and it gives your body a change your immune system to really fight on and, and That's one thing my OFM athletes do. As soon as they are fighting something, we go straight to being strict and 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 you know and that i have a whole protocol with like over-the-counter like vitamins that's come come from uh dr zelenko do you know him vladimir yeah. zelenko yeah. from upstate new york um and he's one of the frontline doctors during covid that has been speaking out and um and has come up with like some over-the-counter protocols too to fight a virus um and so we use that natural approach uh well this is for virus a lot of athletes they just don't they don't they stop getting colds and flus well, they'll get a sniffle for a day or two, and that's it. So, yeah, and, and that's what the, you know, all the data is pointing in that direction. Um, that you know, people who you know, hyperinsulinemia, obesity, things that 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 compromise your fat metabolism, are uh, are the things that are driving you know viral replication, no matter what virus it is. Um, I think that it's also important before we, we end this that we talk about some of the results. We did some testing here in February and March of this year to start to collect data, and, and I think we ought to talk about how exciting it is for you. You've done several tests now. I, I've done a lot of tests and so now. So we've, we've actually been able to replicate that and collect data on it. And, you know, for years, I have to admit, I was wrong. Um, I was a guy, I'm a guy that, like, if it works, it works. What do, what do I need data for? Um, but... I, get, I, I now get it in the modern world. People like to have data because it, it gives them that level of confidence. It is. So we, we now have data uh, based on, Jeff's done 
two or three trials before this, but we started taking data and we're gonna take some more um, over the course of this year and get some more people to take data on, but we've got some pretty gain. I think this is important for all to talk about because with the numbers, you can see how this fundamentally changes the fueling equation. So that, you know, instead of, you know, everybody's thinking and, and you know, all these products have you thinking that you need to have so many calories an hour and you gotta take it in, you know, two, three, 400 calories Well, the, the conventional wisdom is to push up to 300 calories an hour in ultra events or endurance events. Well, and triathlon is 400 to 600 on the bike. Right, so you're pushing a lot of calories and I used to do that for 15 years. That's what, that was my protocol, you know, 70, 70 gels during 100. Oh, can you imagine? 7,000 calories from gel. And that doesn't count anything else. Like I ate at aid stations. So I was eating eight to 10,000 calories, trying to push that down in a 20 to 22-hour 100-miler. And I was wrecked afterwards, man. That and, was a fun morning the next time. Oh, man. <laughs> well, even the side Well, just how swollen I was, man. Even the yeah. side of the whiff of that, that flavor of gel would make you... Oh, yeah. I mean, just so much gel. I can't believe it. And now I'm like... You know, I maybe hit three or four thousand calories over the course of a hundred miler. You know, say under two hundred. Is, is those gels now work the way they're supposed to? They're like sustainable rocket fuel. Yeah, yeah, they yeah. work really well. I still use them. I just only use like four, twelve or fourteen, and then and then an IV drip of some liquid calories from carbs. You know, the equivalent of a gel, basically the equivalent of a gel in a flask, in a in a five hundred milliliter flask mixed with water, and and sip on that as like a constant IV drip of calories. For me and succeed caps, you know, so some salt. So yeah, we've, we've taken, we've gotten some really good data and, and I think it's important to, to provide some context here. So before the faster study, which we was done in 2013 and 14 and uh, all the people in the low carbohydrate diet were people I helped get that adapted. Um, the science suggested that people could burn up to one gram a minute fat oxidation this is why the conventional wisdom is you can't use that for a performance athletic tool but you can't because you can't get that rate per minute high enough to, to, to supplement that was our yeah. uh, that was our agreed upon this is why science is science is theory and it's following data points remember that it's not fact people all, all time try to put it with math like it's a fact right and this was my problem because people this was happening. At least in today's age, I feel like that that's happening more and more. And I keep, I want to call people out. It's just like, that's not how science works. It's following data and theory. Well, it's actually having the observation and getting curious about the observation, forming a hypothesis, then testing the hypothesis. Yes. So it starts, this is the real key thing is, is people need to realize science begins with observation. So instead of like my trajectory, when I started doing this as my day job, it worked for me, but I. I started this in my day job in 2008, 2009. We were I was working with people like John Olson, who was the 2014 uh, international ultra running world champion, the 24 hour. He he had bad stomach and gut issues, but people just were like, "Where's the science?" I mean, all these people were these people I was working with were having these great results or GI issues, with, and people it's like, if there was no published study, it didn't exist. Whereas science is science really should be wow, this is curious, we need to study it. And let's yeah. follow this data. Yeah, let's, right. let's get some data on this. And and so it begins with observation. That's where I, I kind of, you know, and so in after the FASTER study, um, I kind of got dropped in terms of uh, the science community wanting to get my input. 
And so I started to work on trying to get more data and then Jeff was tested by Goo Labs and, and showed some really cool data. And we retested him at uh, Utah State University in, in uh, Logan. And I've been trying to get testing going and then of course we're, we're trying to, we've been talking about this for years and I, I, I bought a metabolic cart and it didn't work out as well because it requires a lot more than I was capable of. And I started to get a study going in late 2019 after we got some pilot data, but then COVID hit and, and that got shut nuts. down right. so, everything. So now that we're starting back up, I, I decided this, this February, look, we got to we got to develop some data to show that, that the numbers, when they're talking about you need two or 300 calories an hour to run an ultra or 200 to 400 to 600 to do a Ironman, you know, we can change that equation. So we had uh, Jeff, Peter, Jesse Haynes, uh, Anthony Kunkel, uh, Nick Curry, Lauren Curry, all run some tests here in February and March. And we got some really interesting data. So, um, you know, what we'd seen previously with Jeff, um, you know, faster established a new baseline. So rather than one, one upwards of one, and most people, most athletes, would, most high carb athletes burn between a half and three quarters of a gram a minute. Faster changed all that because the actual high carb athletes were right in line with the existing science, whereas faster showed you could get up to a one and a half peak oxidation. Okay, so it wasn't that, wasn't peak like one point seven eight or something. That was John Rutherford. Yeah, but the, but the average, the mean was one point five four. So a gram and a half was the mean peak. Basically, it doubled their it, fat burn rate. That's right from the carb group. Two point three. Okay, so we we got that, and that's that was published science. Well, our our data, and you can see this on the Vespa website, our data is showing that you know, people like Peter and Jeff, the reason they can do so well and so little is they're literally in their race modality, almost all their their energy is coming from fat and they're just topping it off with that extra exogenous carbohydrate. carbohydrate. And, and, and now we're seeing that peak fat oxidation is well above, uh, above two grams a minute using, using the whole OFM protocols. And yeah, so leaving li using lifestyle diet to manipulate your metabolism. And, yeah, and Vespa and all these things. And it's it's not just peak fat oxidation, you know, uh, as you can see from this graph we're going to put up, you know, here's here's Peter in March doing a test, and, and he's spending over 10 minutes at over 2 grams a minute. Now, let's do the math here. Okay, and this is just, this is at a high level, but you can see what happens when you look at this graph. Like, he's spending almost all of his time between 1 and 2 grams a minute, but Two grams a minute, that's gonna that's two two times nine is eighteen, so he's basically burning about say over two grams, so he's twenty twenty uh, calories per minute times six. Yep. Do the math. Yep. So all of a sudden that, that need for all those carbohydrates and you can see on this graph here that it just disappears. And what are you guys' thoughts on this in the testing? I mean, how did it feel to to get tested in that data to corroborate the experience right no absolutely um i actually this testing too because i'd done it twice before and uh the second time the yeah the treadmill <laughs> went out on me so uh, i came back for a third test and actually when i did this uh test it was uh after some tired legs too because i had gone out like pretty draw. hard yeah I, and i had a massive blood draw the day before so um i wasn't at my best going in but um you know, I just went out there and just like, well, whatever happens, happens. And uh, um, really opened my eyes because, um, 
you know, running in heart rate for so long. I'd never had this sort of testing done before, um, but just running in heart rate and, and always kind of just playing that safe zone too. And um, as, so I could stay in my fat burning cycle. I really opened my eyes to like, well, I can push so much harder, so much faster. And longer. And longer. And it gives you the confidence. Right. Without, yeah. without even crossing over into burning carbs. I mean, you're always going to, everyone starts burning fat at the beginning and then they have a crossover point. And then, to, but seeing that there was no crossover point was just remarkable. Well, but not only that, but when you look at this chart, I mean, it's like the entire test, you're between one and two grams or one and two and a half grams a minute. Yeah, just trickling carbs, just yeah. bit, just trickling. So that's that's where we go back to, you know, we, we don't take in as, we do take in carbs, but not as much because, yeah, we're not, when you're burning such, you know, little carbohydrates, you just, you don't need to take it in every hour. You could take it in every other hour. Or if, if, if we're getting into high intensity stuff, then we'll, then we know, okay, I'm, I'm pushing myself a little bit harder. I'll take in a little bit more carbs here. But when we're just in our aerobic state, we just, we don't need it. Yeah. And we're taking this faster. So Jeff, I want you to comment on this because I'll, I'll provide some, some little deep in the weed stuff because this is about fat metabolism, not just fat burn, because what we've seen with OFM is when you're in that state, especially when you're using the Vespa, if you're pushing your limit, you, your, your liver is gonna take fat and convert it into glucose to meet that high-end metabolic need. You saw that like in your Utah test, like you cry, and like on the second day, because we were doing these tests fasted, so there's no external calories coming in other than the Vespa half hour before the warm up, and yet, you know, like, like with the Utah test and even at the testing we did in Scottsdale this year, you're able to go harder longer even though you're burning more carbohydrate. Yeah, I thought it was interesting that it like actually pushed across a, I mean, we're getting into, into away from OFM and into Vespa realm, but Vespa helped me push me to a crossover point when in my fasted like OFM state, I was not hitting a crossover point. But the crossover point allowed me to tap into that that glucose pathway when I needed it as a high octane fuel. Right. Right. But, but, but the then liver, the, the liver will actually take liver fat and produce ketones and glucose without catabolizing muscle protein. Right. So you're tapping. And into- so, so you, I felt like my high on OFM, strict OFM, I, I, I definitely, my high end is affected a little bit where I can't push quite as hard as I could. But as soon as you get that to light, with like as a catalyst with the Vespa, I was able to like tap into that and go harder, longer the the next test, even with on tired legs. Yeah. So I, I feel like there is yeah. a place for in that and in the strategy. And we tested and retested because like we did, we did that test the first morning fasted no Vespa, and then a couple hours later we did it fasted with Vespa, and then we came back the next day and you you each time you were pushing harder, longer, but you were burning more carbohydrate. Yeah, I tapped in a little more carbohydrate. But but we saw the opposite in other athletes who had a traditional more higher carb burn rate and a lower crossover point. It helped them tap into fat oxidation yeah, longer. Right. But the interesting thing It's cool. It's kind of like a flex fuel almost or yeah, something. Yeah, 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 that catalyst. So so yeah, with Lauren it was interesting and I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that doing those tests that close cuz you know, you guys as ultra runners, endurance runners, even Lauren you're not used to pushing that hard. Two days in a and row. You're, yeah, burning, yeah. you're burning some matches that first day. You're burning some metabolic, you're sort of mitochondrial matches. So all of a sudden your body's not recovered to 
bird in the fat at the same rate. So. Let alone sucking oxygen out of a straw, basically. On that treadmill. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, it is. So, With the mask and everything, yeah. it's hard. So anyway, it's a hard I test. Mean, this is a sustainable lifestyle. Actually, long term, it's a, it's, a, it's, it's a lower cost lifestyle. Anything you guys would like to add to the conversation? No, but I think like I think so many people just like discount it, ahead, you know, without even ever really giving it a true try. Um, I would I would challenge you to at least do it for a 30 day challenge and try it. Um, it, it it really does. It is kind of a game changer. I know we I know that use that word gets thrown around loosely a lot. But I, I feel like it is. It's a true, it's a true well, statement. Well, you, yeah. you At least in my my experience and the experience with my tons of OFM athletes, like it's just a, it's such a game changer. I would say this, if we want to get into OFM a little bit, I do coach my women athletes a little different. Absolutely. Um, they have a little higher carbs. We do a little more like fuel separation method, which we, that's a whole nother conversation. But but I do like tweak it for them. A little bit and I, they don't go as strict as my male athletes they they my guys are are can go a little stricter with car, with uh, keto um initially and and some of the, i do have them do a reset just so they learn how to eat that type of meal but after that we we bring back more strategic carbs and earlier also, as a as a general rule you have to talk the women away from the ledge in terms of the stress management i mean there are type a guys who are also stress monkeys but a lot of women are like they want to be, you know, because culturally women want, want they're they've been told they have to do it all. They have to have kids, a family, a career. They got they want to do well in their sport, and they all want to do it perfect. And you got to kind of let. Them. Well, they're good multitaskers, so they can constantly have their brains always on. You know, they've done they've done um, tests in lab where they put electrodes on a man and a woman, and they they stare at a blank wall, white wall, and they don't give them any stimulus whatsoever. And a guy literally will shut down. He will go to flatline in his brain function after it's our nothing box. <laughs> we go to our nothing box. Yeah. You know when you, you know when your your wife or girlfriend says, "What are you thinking about?" and you say nothing. Yeah. We literally are thinking about nothing. Mind palace. Because it's our. <laughs> they think we're thinking yeah. something, something else fun. because they can't fathom that because their brain doesn't shut down. Yeah. And they in these studies back it up. On, on their neural pathways and their neural firing, they just keep firing because their brain never shut. That's one of the reasons that my wife can sit there and go, wait, the kids are doing something in the other room while we're in the middle of a conversation. And, and I'm like, what? what? Okay, <laughs> like, no, I can't hear anything besides I'm focusing, I'm in one, one box focusing about what she's yeah. saying. And she's like in three boxes. She's like talking about her conversation. She's listening to the kids in the other room and she's thinking about what she has to do later. Yeah. Like there's like three or four things going on at the same time. They're really good multitaskers. They're better than men yeah. in that. In that. And I, but, that, but that also is, the con is, you know, that's a pro, but the con is, that their their cortisol levels are higher and they're more apt to be stressed out. And modern mo the modern world really does yeah. uh, is a bad construct. So you have to kind of get people to realize you got to turn the notifications on the phone. You can't try to answer a text right away. Um, but like but but to a point with females, um, females literally are made to burn fat, but they give it up a lot harder because evolutionarily the, the, a female is is made by nature to eat and save for two because late gestation, childbirth, and lactation uh, are times where you can't hunt and gather very well and you've got all this stuff, you've got another life growing in you and you can't depend on the male to be around. So, 
you know, it's evolution. And there was a real famous study by a guy who was doing orangutans. He was following around these pregnant and nursing female orangutans in the forest and getting peed on. He was putting out the, the pee sticks and getting literally getting peed on. The, these these female orangutans are in deep ketosis. And then I've worked with dairy nutritionists, talk, had conversations about this, and this is one of the problems because the breeding of dairy cows, when they calve, they go into a hyper state of ketosis, if you don't manage that well, they'll literally drain all their resources from their bones and their liver to put it into that milk because they've been bred for, for this ungodly milk, unnatural milk production. You know, whereas a, a, and so, you know, females are really good fat burners, but it's, it's a very different way you have to work with them. So you, you can't shrink it and tank it. It's true. Yeah, yeah. so, Peter, anything from you after we yeah, I mean, I've, I just, I, I won't look back. Um, I, I, like Jeff said, I would challenge anybody. I mean, I, I'm not one of, the, I'm very open with a lot of things in life. And uh, if, if something's not working for you, just, you know, give it a shot. And um, I don't necessarily think you have to be, you know, a meat eater. You can definitely be vegetarian and do this too and get your protein elsewhere. But um, it's more of a challenge. It is more of a challenge. But yeah, I think if you're vegetarian, like I've worked with some, world-class level mid, middle-aged vegetarian athletes and, and this is why um, I found that these people were more focused on their performance and their health so I got them just by getting their ovo lacto right pescatarian someone pescatarian but just by getting the liver and the gelatin capsules yeah. that would do that their performance went through the roof their injuries disappeared and so that being said, it's not like the carnivore, the carnivore movement, like the keto movement, they get these movements and they kind of go overboard. Yeah, yeah, they go like too much in one direction. Right, and so it, this is not about eating like two or two to four pounds of ribeyes and ground chuck every day. It, it, what I've found is when you get that nutritional balance of whole animal eating, it's, it's, it's surprising how little you need and how good you feel for the amount of... Uh, yeah physical activity and mental activity and how stable you are um yeah it's I it's think you guys would agree there yeah it's clean eating it's not it's not atkins it's not like you know again it, it's just i eat meat vegetables and some fruit i was just clean eating at the end of the day well, we've just it's hyper efficient right and, and we've just kind of adapted our bodies to to fuel efficiently well and when you think about it from an evolutionary context because we're you know the anthropological records clear that we're hunter gatherers we were really evolved to be hyper efficient, you know, and, and and that's the physiology. So yeah, so that's kind of it. Step back from a lot of the marketing you're getting, and just think for yourself that you know the reason you you carry a lot of fat is because that's what you're meant to burn in your aerobic spectrum, and um, you know your glucose, your your glycogen is your fight or flight fuel, and then and and think about that and that's what nature had for us and when you think about it from that perspective this will start to make a lot more sense but it, it you know um, and then the final thing I want to say is is like a lot of people this is this is it's to get started it's complicated because there's a lot of moving parts it's not just diet it's not just training it's not just vitamin D it's a lot of things so consider getting a coach to help guide you through it. And all three of us do that. Um, so um, Peter and Jeff are great resources to kind of guide you through that, that, that initial journey to get you adapted. And once you get there, you kind of get to know it and it's pretty easy. And, and you know, even the guy behind the camera there, Derek, he's, he's full on now. 
and he's got it tailored for himself. It works. Yeah. yeah. Even our cameraman's on board. <laughs> so on that note, yeah. any other things? That, that's that's it for me. Yeah, I mean, just uh, if, if again, with the coaching, uh, eight more miles coaching, if you'd like to learn more about it on, on my end, and Jeff, go broncobilly.com. Yep. OFM.io. So we'll be all working together. We collaborate, we share information, and that's what it's about because, I mean, we're passionate about this because um, when you look at the whole healthcare thing, this whole thing that will last two years, it's really about metabolic health. And yeah, the people who they, that that COVID really attacked was metabolically compromised people, and they were the they got the worst end of the stick. And that's one way we can fight viruses. Yeah. So is, we're about make bringing back some positive change, not to just endurance athletes, but the general population. Yeah, and your lifestyle. Yep. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, giddy up. Thanks, Derek. Yeah. Giddy up. Yeah. <laughs>